There are things that we, we think we know or that we understand, and, um, and then there's some things that are hard to believe. And when you hear those things, you struggle with them. And so um, that, that's just kind of how it is in life. You hear new information, and if it wasn't information you had, it's hard to process. So I'll give you a few examples. So one of these examples is the full length of the Greek national anthem has 158 verses. This is crazy. Did you know this? I mean, I had a hard time processing this when I heard it. Or here's another one. Saudi Arabia imports many of its camels from Australia. Like, that doesn't make any sense. But it's true. Or here's another one. A human head of hair can support 12 tons of weight. That's kind of gross. Weird. Hard to believe. Or blue whales are the largest animals in history. Did you know that? I kind of thought dinosaurs were bigger, but it turns out blue whales are two times the size of any dinosaur. Or in a large airplane, there's enough fuel to drive a car around the world. Four times. So I'm not going to Chevron anymore. I'm going to the airport for some jet fuel. Or hippopotamus milk is actually pink. I don't know who found that out, who got close enough to a hippo, but it's dangerous work. Or lobsters don't grow old and die. They, they, they actually only die of external circumstances. They're like immortal, apparently, lobsters. And lastly, at launch, the iPhone had the same computing power as NASA in 1969 <laughs> when it launched the historically manned mission to the moon, which means if you got the right app on your phone, you could go to the moon. There's some things you'll need to research, some things you hear, and you'll need to be sure yourself, and so you'll go and you'll try to figure it out because it's hard to believe, and you'll want to be sure before you repeat it. Some things you'll, you'll want to see before you believe it, like someone singing the Greek national anthem. I'd like to see that. And that's how it is when you hear something that you didn't know before. And this is how the disciples felt as they began to hear the news that Jesus had risen. This is where we are in the story. We're at the very end of Luke. We've come to the end of Luke. And there was a cheer. Jesus died. Jesus died and they all saw it. They were watching when the world groaned and when the sky went black and even the Romans saw it and they were unsure of what was happening Joseph took the body down, and he put it into a new tomb. And then the world rested on that Sabbath and waited. And then on the third day, strange stories, weird stuff started happening, nonsense stories. I mean, things just too weird to be true. And on that Sunday night, everyone gathered in a room, all the disciples and their entourage, all the different people who'd come there together, they all went into a room together to talk about this Everyone except for a few people who'd already left. A few of them had gone off down the road to Emmaus. And some others, you know, people who were starting to fracture and go. But then they gathered in this room, and that's where we pick up our story. That's where our story picks up. It's Luke chapter 24, verses 33 to 53. So I'll read a little bit back. So the the people who'd gone on the road to Emmaus, 
they ended up encountering Jesus. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple blessing God. This is God's word and the end of Luke. That's the end of it. Yay. Some of you are sad too. This morning we're talking about how responding to risen Jesus changes us into worshipful witnesses. Responding to risen Jesus changes us into worshipful witnesses. Jesus invites He invites us. He invited them. Um, There's a story, a a real story, that in March 2002 in England, there's a guy named John Darwin, and uh, he went out in a canoe, and he never came back. And so they did the search, and eventually the wreckage of the canoe was found, but they never found a body. And so he was presumed dead. And his wife um, got life insurance, not all the life insurance, because they need a body, but some of the life insurance, And um, about a year after that, a neighbor was walking in the neighborhood and ran into this guy and said, aren't you supposed to be dead? And he said, shh, don't tell anyone. And so the neighbor doesn't, just went on and just was like, okay, that's your thing. And almost five years later, this guy, John Darwin, walks into a police station and he claims he had amnesia. For all this time. This is his story. But the police had already begun to suspect that he was alive because they'd received different reports and colleagues that worked from the wife and different things. So they kind of already knew. And in the end, uh, the wife and the husband spent time in jail for their fraud. It's called fraud, where you do this. So I was thinking about this because I was wondering, what do you say to someone you thought might be dead? What do you say to them? Like this neighbor says, hey, aren't you supposed to be dead? 
Like someone you thought was dead, and you're like, hey, aren't you supposed to be dead? You're alive. That's what you might say to someone you thought might be dead. What do you say to someone who actually was dead when you see them? You say, ah! Like that, right? I mean, that's how you respond. I'm sorry if I woke you up. That's how the disciples respond when they see Jesus. They respond with fear because they saw him dead. That's how you respond to someone you saw dead when you see them alive again. You freak out. And part of me wishes Jesus had appeared to the chief priest in his room that night or something. You know, like that would have been a great story too, where he sees Jesus alive again. That would have been awesome, but that didn't happen. But the disciples, it says, were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. That's what they thought when they saw Jesus alive. Because, see, when Jesus had died, the chief priests were worried. They were worried about the promises that Jesus had made, the things that he had said, that he would rise from the dead on the third day. And is this, is this annoying you, the sound? No? Okay. It's not annoying me either. Um, Jesus, oh, Jesus, so Jesus had made these claims. He'd said that he would rise from the dead. And so the chief priests knew this, and so they were worried about it. They weren't worried that he would actually rise from the dead. They were worried that the disciples would steal the body. And so in order for them to sleep better, they had Roman soldiers guard the tomb. And then they went to bed, and they, were, they, didn't, they weren't afraid anymore. They weren't worried. However, after the Sabbath strange things started happening. Weird things. Like the soldiers come back from the tomb and they're saying there was crazy stuff going on. There's an earthquake and there's bright lights, there's angels, there's all these stuff happening. And, and so they, they ran. These women are coming back babbling nonsense. Some story about an empty tomb and empty linen and all this stuff about, you know, angel announcements. And then Mary returns and she says, I actually saw him. I thought he was the gardener, but, but I saw him. He's alive. In John chapter 20, John records, it says, Then the other disciple, so that's John, who had reached the tomb first before Peter, also went in and he saw and believed when he saw the empty tomb. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. So there's all this weird stuff happening, and there's an empty tomb, and there's people coming back with stories, and then Sunday night, they all get together in this room, and they're talking about all the different things they've heard and seen. So what happened to you? What did you see? Like, let's get this all written down. Let's figure out what's actually going on. And suddenly, these two burst in who had been on the road to Emmaus, and they come in with stories about disguises. Jesus had walked with them on the road, and then when he broke the bread, they recognized him, and their hearts were burning within them the whole time. And, and so as they're all talking about this, Jesus appears in the room with them. So they're not talking about strange stories anymore. They're living a strange story. As Jesus appears in the room, and he says to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened. And then he says, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? This seems like such a silly thing for Jesus to ask. Why am I troubled? Where do I start? Where do I start? I mean, the boat is sinking in the storm, Jesus. 
Let's start there. Or the 5,000 hungry men plus women and kids. Or the crippled guy who just got lowered through the roof. Jesus. Or she's a prostitute, the one who's touching you. Do you know that? Or that was a leper, that guy you just grabbed. Or Lazarus is dead and you were too late. Why am I troubled? Why do doubts rise in my heart? I think it should be obvious. You were taken, Jesus. They beat you. You were crucified. You died broken and alone. Your blood was all poured out. We saw them take your dead corpse and put it into the tomb. Why are you troubled? Maybe it's that my heart can't take any more evil. I'm with you, John. No more Facebook posts. No more, not one more mass shooting. Not, not one more ca- cancer casualty or another abuse victim. Not one more refugee of war. Why am I troubled? Well, there's a lot of reasons. And I love how Jesus comes to them and to us. He's so gentle. He comes and he says, see my hands and my feet, that it is on myself. Touch me and see. This is a risen Jesus who comes among us and he says, touch me and see. Encounter me, I'm here to meet you. The one who calms seas and storms. The one who feeds the hungry, the bread of life. The one who forgives sin and heals body and heart. The one who raises the the dead. The risen Savior, the Lion of Judah, the firstborn from the dead. Thomas has to wait eight days to see him, though. Thomas isn't there. And if you know that story, you'll know he's the one who says, unless I can hear you all telling me, but unless I see him myself, unless I touch him, Myself, I won't believe. And then Jesus comes to Thomas and says, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So when I'm troubled and when doubts rise in my heart, when the the grief of the world feels too heavy for me, I go to him. I go to him. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, siblings in Christ, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Living Jesus is faithful. And Jesus explains. He explains things. I love that he takes time to do this. So there, there are things you didn't know that you learned, like I gave you a list of those things. There are also things that you think you know that are actually wrong. They aren't true. And things you, you can be so convinced of that actually later you find out, like, okay, that was a really limited perspective. So here's a few examples of that. In 1903, the president of Michigan Savings Bank said to Henry Ford, the horse is here to stay, 
but the automobile is only a novelty, a fad, which turns out was wrong. 1920, the New York Times writes, a rocket will never be able to leave the Earth's atmosphere. And so when Apollo launched, they wrote a retraction and said we were wrong. 1933, the Boeing engineer says, there will never be a bigger plane built. He's talking about the 247, seats 10 people. (laughs) Dude, you got to see the 747. 10 people. 1943, Thomas Watson, the chairman of IBM, says, I think the world has a market for maybe five computers. (laughs) Yeah, for a household. (laughs) He didn't say that. 1946, Daryl Zanuck, a movie producer, says, Television won't last because people will soon tire of staring at a plywood box every night. (laughs) Of course, that's true. 1977, there is no reason anyone would want a computer in their house says Ken Olson, because they want iPads now. They don't want computers, right? 1997, Wired Magazine writes, admit it, you're out of the hardware game to a a company called Apple. I don't know if you've heard of them. You're out of it. You're done. You're going out in 1997. There are a lot of things we thought we understood. Things that we had nailed down. Smart people, scientists and journalists and CEOs and bankers and presidents of companies. But they were wrong. And they just didn't understand. Their perspective was limited. And in the same way the disciples meet Jesus and they're happy when they finally get over their fear to see Jesus, but they still don't understand. That's what it says. It says they, they had this still disbelief for joy and were marveling. You know, there's lots of things we've heard and that we know and that we understand. We think we understand, but we don't. Words we know, words like grace or gospel or justification or sanctification or love. Things that we think we know and yet It's still a mystery. And I think while they were coming out from behind the couches and under the table as Jesus is standing there and they finally get over their fear as they like ran from him thinking he was a ghost. And they come out and Jesus is in the fridge. He's getting fish and chips. This is a weird part of the story, isn't it? For like what? You you wouldn't add this in if you were making up this story. Jesus goes and he gets fish, broiled fish. They even say what kind of fish it was. Like some broiled fish, please. Okay, like just picture Jesus. So guys, mm, this is so good. Mm. So like I said, I, I'm trying to tell you about the things that I was talking about. Peter, this is good fish. Mm. Like that I came to rescue the world. That all the prophecies are about me. Like he's eating fish. What is he doing? Ghosts don't eat. They don't walk to Bethany. They don't cook on the beach. They don't sit and spend hours explaining the Bible. They don't take walks to recommission deniers. And they don't let you touch their wounds. And they don't stretch out their hands to bless you. That's what Jesus is doing. He's helping them understand something. 
that he is alive, that death has no sting. Death has been defeated, and the kingdom is here. Luke says Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Now, I was thinking about this, and um, I was thinking about how you can explain sex to kids, and I think you should. I think that's important. Wow, it just got really quiet in here. I think that's important that you explain to your kids about sex before someone else does. So I think that's good. Now, as we have five kids, so we've done this numerous times. And, and the thing that we, I find is that they're still confused. You can say all the words about it. You can explain it totally. And still, they're confused about it. There's still these questions about why or how this could be. And later, they'll, you know, different kids have told me, you know, I thought maybe you need a special suit or maybe it was when you kiss or like maybe when you're dancing or when you sleep in the bed. Like, they, it's like this, this thing they don't understand, even though you can explain it. And then suddenly one day, they understand. There's a moment, oh, 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 mom and dad, oh. And it's like it, they understand. And that's what happens with Jesus. He's, he's saying, you guys, I've told you this over and over. I've said these words to you over and over and over. <gasps> oh, now we get it. What you were saying, it's suddenly come home. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. <gasps> and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Oh. <gasps> Oh, whoa. And Jesus goes through a Bible lesson with them. Like, wouldn't you want to be in that room? Like, I want that Bible lesson. I would like that Bible study. Jesus going through the Bible and explaining everything, where he is in all of it, explaining how this whole God story has been about him, not about them. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac, the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. 
There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace but lost the ultimate heavenly one. Who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover land, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. Something like that. As Jesus goes through the Bible, scripture by scripture, explaining how he fulfills, how he answers, how we now take those lenses and we look at everything through Jesus. Hebrews 10, 16 says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts, and write them on their minds. The author of Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah, the prophet, who's speaking with the voice of God. This is what Jesus came to do, not to eat fish, not to have dinner with the disciples. He came to write something on their hearts and on their minds, something that previously had not been inside but outside hearts and minds. We can be here a long time and, and still not get it, still just have the words and still just be thinking about these things as concepts when the risen Jesus is here to open our minds, to understand, to encounter him. Romans 12.1 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And Jesus transforms us. He transforms us. There was a couple who lived in Minnesota, and it's cold winters in Minnesota, and so they were going to um, travel to Florida. And the way their flights worked out, the husband had to leave a few days before the wife, and so he checked into the hotel, and um, he decided he'd send an email and to his wife and let her know. And so he sent her the email. However, he, when he typed in her address, her email address, he missed it by one letter. And if you've ever done that, you know that it goes somewhere. We don't know where those emails go, off into the ether. But they don't go to the person you intend to send them to. Now, on a different part of the country, there was a, a, a woman, a widow, who just returned from her, her funeral service of her pastor husband. 
And so she got back and she was going to check her email. She was expecting some messages from family who hadn't been there. And uh, so she checked her email and then she screamed and fainted. And her adult son ran into the room and he, he looked at the screen to see what she'd read. And this is what he saw. To my loving wife, I've just been checked in. Everything has been prepared for your arrival here tomorrow. Looking forward to seeing you then. Your devoted husband. P.S. It sure is hot down here. Oh, dear. So how, how would you respond to a message from the dead? I mean, this lady feel, thought this was a message from the dead, and so she freaked out. That's how you would respond. Now, the disciples aren't getting an email. They have Jesus standing there, giving them a message, explaining things to them, opening their minds to understand it, transforming their view of things so that it could not and would not ever be the same. And then he's blessing and commissioning them. It's this beautiful thing. Before Jesus leaves, he tells his followers, you are the witnesses of these things. You are the witnesses. Do you know what the word in Greek, witness, is? It's martus. Martus. One who can or does speak of what he's seen or heard or knows. Martus, does that seem like a different word that you know? Anyone? Martyr. Martyr. That's where the word comes from. Witness. That's what it means. It's, number one, in a legal sense, you could be a witness. A witness called to court to give testimony. Or secondly, it's in a historical sense. So in a particular, like you were a witness to an event that happened, a historical event that you saw and were part of? Or thirdly, in an ethical sense, that there are those who, by their witness, stand and say, no, this is true. And they stand there in the midst, in the face of death, some of them, those who refuse to recant. And that's why they're called martyrs. That's where the word comes from. John 15, 26 says, but Jesus says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear martus, he will bear witness about me. And then in Acts 1, 8, but you will, you, Jesus says to the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses same word, in Jerusalem and in Judea and all of Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then a little bit later, once they've experienced some of the pushback, the disciples, and they're in front of the chief priests, they've been beaten, they've been thrown in jail already, and this is what they say, and we are witnesses, martus, to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Hebrews 12.1, maybe you know this passage. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those who saw, those who knew, those who stood with their lives because of what they'd seen. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is why Jesus says, wait. He says, wait. He's there talking to them, and he says, wait. Don't go yet. 
Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, which is the Holy Spirit. And, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Because, of course, we don't do mautus. We don't witness in our own power. You can't. It doesn't work. It's just words. The Spirit bears witness. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then you'll be martyrs, witnesses. This was the promise. The paraclete is the word. That the one who comes alongside, the one who will be in us and with us, who clothes us with power, resurrection power, the one who bears testimony, who confirms to our hearts that Jesus is the Son of God, who died and rose and is seated at the right hand of God. Why would we do it without the Spirit? There is no witness in your own power. This is not a self-strength thing. Like, write it down. Okay, go and tell everyone you know about Jesus. Go on. Come on, everyone do it. It's what you're supposed to do. It doesn't say that. Jesus says, wait for the Holy Spirit to come and fill you, and then you will be my witnesses because you will be transformed. And they become worshipers. Verses 52 and 53 says, then they all, then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Jesus has just ascended. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Now, to me, I'm like, oh, of course they do. They're the disciples. They're like saints, right? Worshiping all the time and staying in the temple and great joy and they're praising. Of course they do. But the rest of us, we're normal, right? We're like normal humans. And it's a little bit harder than that. Doesn't it feel like that? Just go worship all the time and praise and stay in the temple. Yeah. It's like, yeah, okay. That sounds a bit overwhelming to me. That's why I love the Matthew version of this. As, as Jesus is giving the great commission, this is what it says. Now the 11 disciples were, went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And then it goes on and Jesus gives the great commission. Have you ever noticed that before? They worshiped and some doubted. Some doubted? Like some who? Like some of the 11? Some of them? They're standing looking at Jesus, the risen Jesus. I don't understand. Aren't they the ones who touched the the wounds? Aren't they the ones who got the, the, the Bible study where Jesus explained everything? So take heart. That's what I take from that. Take heart. If you doubt, if you're troubled, if you struggle, if you pass through the waters, if you walk through the fire, if you're afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, or struck down, if in this world you experience trouble, because this is what Jesus says in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Or in Matthew 28, behold, I am with you always. Jesus is with us always, even to the end. Responding 
to risen Jesus changes us into worshipful witnesses. Jesus invites us. Are you troubled? Do you doubt? Gentle Jesus invites us to touch him, to come and encounter him, not just to hear about him. He is alive. When we encounter him, we are invited to believe like they were. Believe, it's me, I'm alive. And Jesus explains, there's so many things we don't understand. So many things we don't understand. And Jesus spent time opening their minds to understand things they didn't know before. That Jesus does this. And the biggest thing we need to wrap our heads around is that this is God's story, not our story. It's his story, and it's all about Jesus. And Jesus transforms us. Once we've responded to him, once we've encountered him, we become witnesses. What else would we be but people who've experienced a transformed life, experienced his love poured out over us? Our lives changed, and suddenly we are the witnesses. The more we see him, the more we love him. And our worship on this side of the veil is faith, trust. We trust he's here and that he's overcome. Let's pray.